It's a joy to welcome you to our Wednesday night Bible study time, a time of friendship, a time of fellowship, a time of praise and thanksgiving, and hopefully for you a time of great encouragement and blessing. We look to the Lord always for His help, His blessing in life. It's wonderful to know a great God who not only sits on the vault of the earth, that's how Isaiah describes it, He is enthroned on the vault of the earth. If you think He's not in control, just think about that, if you will. And our great God who is a great creator, but He's a great redeemer, and one who loves us dearly, and one who's in charge of our lives, and His sovereign goodness prevails over everything. So let's enjoy the goodness and the blessing of the Lord. Let's get our minds active of the blessings that we have for which to be thankful. And then stir us up tonight uh, as Pastor Pelletier gives us a new study on the growing church. What a text you have for for me to read tonight. Uh, Very very well-known man uh, in the scriptures. And he just appears out of nowhere and he appears at night. A very interesting character, uh, and uh, but the the insight into this passage starts in in the chapter preceding, where it talks about Jesus uh, in his relationship with men, fully perceiving what was going on on the inside of men in their hearts and in their minds, and knowing that he said what he said to this man, by the name of Nicodemus. Well, let's read the text of scriptures tonight. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will, will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Amen. Amen. Interesting passage. And uh, tonight we're going into chapters 9 and 10 of Dean Taylor's book on uh, the thriving church. And these two chapters really kind of come together. I, I, I envied Dean a little bit in that he was able to cover what is being what I'll be covering for several weeks in two chapters. I'm not sure exactly how he did that. Uh, there's a lot of material there. Uh, we're going to be looking tonight at nine different examples of Jesus Christ and how he was full of grace and truth and how he modeled for you and me how we should be witnessing the people around us. Now this all comes back to our study in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have a minute, turn, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll kind of give you the idea of where we're going uh, in the study. Now we won't be going through all those nine examples tonight, I'll let you know that, so we won't be up till midnight. But uh, I do want you to know where we're going. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. We've read these verses many times, and we're going to go back to them again tonight, because it does set the pace for where we're going. And then we'll look into John chapter 1 for just a minute as well. So if you want to stick your finger in those two chapters, Ephesians 4 and John 1, or you can follow along in the notes that I've provided for you. In, John, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, it says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That has a lot to say with where we're going tonight. Now, John chapter one, verses three. John chapter one, verses one through three, and verse fourteen tells us we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He was like, and this pattern that He'll be setting for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I put that as a cross-reference in my Bible from John Genesis chapter 1. Jesus was there in Genesis chapter 1. But then in verse 14 it says, And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. We just celebrated Christmas. That's what it's talking about. And we saw his glory during his earthly ministry, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And how was he? What was his spirit? What was his attitude as he walked among us? He was full of grace and truth. And we're looking to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, having the fullness of Christ in our lives as we go about the ministries that God has given to us. What is that like? It is a life full of grace and truth. And that's the focus of what we're looking at tonight, the pattern of grace and truth. The four questions that have permeated our study since we began this way back, whenever we started in the first chapter, the questions are, what is growth? That's what thriving is. 
and the thriving church. We're talking about growth. What is growth? What causes growth? And we've been talking about, am I helping or hindering my church's growth? And how can I help make my church a growing body? Those are the, that's the focus of the entire study that we've begun in the thriving church. Now, growth, as we defined in the last lesson, I think it was three weeks ago, uh, through Dean Taylor's book, he defined it as this progress over time towards a goal. That is growth. It takes time to get there. And, uh, and it's a process that God has to do in our hearts to get us to this place of growth. And we talked a lot about it. And the three points that we talked about in our last lesson, I'm just reviewing a little bit because it's been a while. We've had some some uh, side trips through Christmas and through the new year. Uh, but uh, growth implies progress, and growth requires time, and growth moves toward a very definite goal. And what is that goal? That goal is unity as a church around the doctrines of the faith, and it is also becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, having that attitude and that spirit of grace and truth. You know, a lot of times people want to measure the growth of a church by the size of its buildings, the size of its bank accounts, the, the number of people on staff, how many missionaries they support, uh, how many ministries are going on out of the church, the size of the congregation, all sorts of things we use to measure whether a church is growing or not. But I can tell you that we can have a lot of people who aren't growing. And we can have nice buildings and still not be growing. We can have money in the bank and not be growing. We can have missionaries all over the place and not be growing as individuals and as a church. It's very important that we understand that growth comes when we are united around doctrinal truth and we are, we are like the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 says that we are to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, the example of Jesus Christ, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Jesus Christ is the standard by which we measure growth. When we become like him, we are growing as a Christian. Now, we talked about unity, the unity of the faith, it says in Ephesians chapter 4. And the unity of the faith is the idea of us being centered on the same things. Uh, long ago, back in the 1800s, before he became president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln made a speech in Illinois at the Illinois Republican State Convention back in June of 1858, before he was the president. And in that, in that speech, he said, a house divided cannot stand. And that was true. He was looking forward to, and somehow he understood the great possibility of the Civil War coming to our nation, a fight over slavery and states' rights. And he wanted to do everything that he could to bring the country together, but he knew that there was going to be this battle. 750,000 people died in the Civil War, only second to the World War II when we had even greater killing opportunities operations and machines and 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 weaponry uh, the second the, the the second largest number of Americans who were killed during that war and then Abraham Lincoln came back and said we cannot remain a divided house we've got to bring the nation together and he as a remarkable leader was able to reunite the United States and get them going together in in one direction 
he brought the divided parties together. But long before Abraham Lincoln made that statement, Jesus Christ made that statement in Mark chapter 3. He says in Mark chapter 3, this is because he had been accused of fighting against Satan by being part of Satan's uh, plan uh, by the Pharisee, Pharisaic leaders. And he said in Mark chapter 3, verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. And we need to understand the importance of unity, especially during times like we are in right now. As a church, we're not able to meet. We're all in our homes. You're watching from various different places. Some of you in Canada, some of you in other parts of the world, I believe. I'm not sure where you are, but I know our own church body, our local church body that normally meets on the corner of Franklin and Geary in, in San Francisco is not able to meet regularly right now. And so it's important that we maintain unity built upon what we believe in the doctrines of the faith and our desire to fulfill the mission that Jesus Christ left for us to reach our community with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we do that and we remain united, we can thrive as a church in spite of the fact that we cannot physically be together for public meetings. Hopefully that will change soon. But in the meantime, it's important that we do not allow ourselves to wander from the Lord. It's important that we do not become complacent. It's real easy. I've actually heard some people say, oh, I really like just being able to get up and turn on the TV and be at church and not have to drive down to the building and go through the parking problems and, and all of that. We need to be concerned about that and being back there and it was if we're not careful we're going to get lazy and we're going to forget what it is to be a local church and some people haven't been in church for a long time and i think some are even drifting away from the live stream let me encourage you to be careful that you do not let yourself become cold and indifferent during these times second peter chapter 3 verse 17 the apostle peter said be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I really have never seen a more dangerous time for the American church than we are in right now because of the COVID, because of the political situation. But the truth of the matter is, is we keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and we stay focused in his word. I trust that you're reading it. I trust that you're singing along with us in the hymns. I trust that you're looking for gospel opportunities. That's what we're here for. That's why we are still here. Otherwise, the Lord would just take us on up to heaven. We are here for a purpose. This is not the first time there's been trouble in the world. This is not the first time Christians have had to deal with difficult times like this. I think of the Chinese Christians. I think of Christians in, in the Middle East. I think of Christians in other places of the world where they have to deal with this in a much more difficult situation. African Christians, a uh, much more difficult situation sometimes than we are in even now. We need to keep our eyes on the prize. Now, we keep hearing this statement, put your faith in science. Don't put your faith in science. 
Science is in constant flux. It changes constantly. The books that were science books a hundred years ago and even decades, a few decades ago are, are now out of print and, and, and been, have been replaced by new books with, with new theories that replace the old theories and new ideas that replace the old ideas. And those ideas will be replaced sometime down the road. Science is the one that tells us that we are the result of evolution that we are accidentally here after millions of years of crawling through the primordial soup. And someone put it this way, you came from the goo through the zoo to become you. And uh, that's ridiculous. Of course it's not true. We are not an accident. Science has got that wrong. We only know that we can find the truth when we get into God's Word. We are not animals. We are not here by accident. We are created by a loving God for a purpose of serving and knowing Him. Only God's book has never changed. Put your faith in the Creator, the one who put all of this thing together. Place your life, your business, your family, your children, your future in His loving and caring hands. Ask God to continue to stir your heart. I hope that's part of your prayer life. I hope you have a prayer life. Ask God to stir your heart. Ask God for revival. A friend of mine told me today, he says, I believe we're on the verge of a really great revival in our nation. Things have been shook up so much, people have to turn to God. And I believe that is the answer for our day. The message of the gospel is needed today more than ever. Pray that our present state does not become our permanent state. Pray for your that your own heart remains warm to the things of God. Pray for your children and your grandchildren. Pray for the lost people all around us who are living in fear and chaos and totally unaware of where they're going. They need the gospel. They need the hope that only Jesus Christ can offer. It's the tr only true hope for a world full of fear. People are concerned about COVID, they're concerned about elections, they're concerned about all sorts of things. And the only hope for the dying, who are going to die, some are going to die from COVID, some know people who are dying from COVID, the only hope that they have is to get the gospel to them so that they can know where they're going when that day comes. Medicine, doctors, hospitals, politicians, pharmaceutical companies, and essential workers are not, they can only do so much, and I'm thankful for what they can do. But only healing comes from God. Vaccines may help, but only God can heal and sustain life. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39 says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. As Job was going through his difficulties, he restated it as well. In Job chapter 12, verse 7, he reminded us that our lives are in God's hands. And it's very important that we live according to his terms. Job chapter 12, verse 7, Ask the beasts, and let them teach you, and the birds of the heavens, and let them tell you, or speak to the earth, and let it teach you, and let the fish of the sea declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Our all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God has allowed COVID-19 and our, polit our political situation to come to us uh, for his own divine purpose. And we need to, be, uh, we need to allow uh, him, his will to be accomplished. Many in our world are living in a panic. 
but we have the answer. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is more imperative than ever that our church remains united in doctrine and in mission to accomplish our goal of being a mission here in, uh, the, in our city and around the world through our foreign mission program. Don't allow your faith to waver. Don't allow the fire of God to fade in your heart. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, which we just spoke of, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Growth is seen as we unite around God's word and as we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say that over and over again until it rings deep and true in your heart. What was Jesus Christ like? John 1.14, he was full of grace and truth. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing on how we can become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we need to examine how he dealt with people, how he shared the gospel with people, how he loved people and cared for people, how he was gracious to people, but he never backed away from telling the truth that they needed to know there is a heaven, there is a hell, and we must prepare for eternity. It cannot be anybody else's business but the church. Your business, my business as believers, we must be busy about the Lord's work. Jesus demonstrated for us the pattern of grace and truth in mission in his dealings with the following people. Uh, there's nine that we're listing. We're going to go through one tonight, and the next few weeks we'll be covering the other nine. Maybe a couple a night, maybe just one a night. We'll see how it goes. But tonight we're going to be looking at a religious and moral man out of John chapter 3. Pastor just did a wonderful job reading that passage. He, he exuded with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he told this man the truth about his need. And we'll go there for a little while. Next few weeks we'll deal with a religious and immoral woman from John 4. A crowd of hungry followers in John 6. A woman caught in sin, John 8. A grieving family in John 11. A self-centered disciples, a group of those guys in John chapter 13. A skeptical observer named Thomas in John 20. A failing follower named Peter, who we all know, in John 21. And then a dying sinner, the thief on the cross, back in John 19. So each one of these people represents the kind of people that are in our community that need the gospel. Some are in our own church. But we need to be gracious and truthful to these people. How do we deal with, number one, and this is where we'll only be tonight, we're not going to go to points nine, two through nine, but number one, how are we going to deal with a religious and moral man, like a man named Nicodemus? He was a prominent Pharisee. In John chapter 3 and verse 10, it says he was the teacher of Israel. He was the number one Pharisee. He was the guy that everybody looked to. He was the guru that they all followed. Said He's the smart one. He's the one who knows the most. He's the most educated. He's the best teacher. And yet, he needed the Lord. You know, you can be intelligent, you can be religious, and you can still miss the point. And Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand that. He was committed to keeping God's laws. He was striving for moral perfection but he was an honest man, and he knew that there was something lacking in his life. 
Uh, he was a proud man, so he had to come to Jesus by night. But he was probably like that rich young ruler that you read about in Matthew chapter 19, Mark 10, and, verse, and Luke chapter 18, where he comes to Jesus and he says, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep the commandments. He says, I've done all that. What do I lack yet? And Jesus said, You go sell everything you have and come follow me. See, the man didn't understand what it was. It's not what we do, it's who we trust that brings us to a place of salvation. And that man, the rich young ruler, turned away. Thankfully, I don't believe Nicodemus did. But he knew that presently, in his situation, as the teacher of Israel, as a Pharisee, pursuing moral morality and all of the good things of life, trying to keep all of these laws, and they even added laws to the laws that God gave, and he was trying to keep all of those, but he knew that he was still falling short of God's standard of perfection. He came to Jesus for answers that had troubled him all of his life. He was enamored with the amazing things that Jesus did, turning water into wine, uh, going into the, te the temple and, and clearing the temple with a, with a handmade whip of all the money changers and the animals and the, and the business that they were doing in the house of God. And, uh, and turning it into a den of thieves. Jesus had, uh, had drawn crowds to hear him preach. And they'd been watching Jesus for quite a while. As I was thinking about this and doing some cross-references through the study, uh, the one cross-reference took me back to Luke chapter 2, where it talked about Jesus sitting in front of the teachers as a 12-year-old boy. His parents had come, Mary and Joseph had come, uh, his literal mother and his stepfather, whose real father was, was God himself, but his stepfather, Joseph, and they came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. And while they were there, they got so busy with all the activities, and Mary and Joseph took off, and one thought Jesus was with the women, and the other thought Jesus was with the men, and they got three days away before they realized that he was gone. He was not there with them. And they were quite disturbed. And they turn around and come back, and what did they do? They found him in Luke chapter 2, sitting in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I don't know. There's no way of knowing for sure if Nicodemus was there. But if he was the teacher of Israel, I'm sure that his training had begun much earlier. He may not have been the teacher of Israel at that point when Jesus was 12 years old, but I'm sure that he was either there or he had definitely heard about this young man who had so amazed the teachers in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. That's probably 18 or 20 years before Nicodemus and Jesus met. And I believe that these religious teachers had been keeping their eye on this lad from Galilee, this carpenter's son who was showing so much promise and who was... Uh, having such an amazing life before them. It's likely for two decades Nicodemus and the religious leaders had had their eye on Jesus and they knew something was very different about him compared to their own attempts at religious morality. So this curious leader now comes to Jesus. He's troubled in his heart. I'm not matching up to what God's standard is. I need answers. And because he was so well-known, he had to come at, by in stealth mode. Uh, someone would say cloak and dagger, but I don't think he had a dagger. 
but he came by night to, to see Jesus, hoping nobody would see him. He had some pride, and he, and, he, and, he, and he didn't want to lead people astray if he found Jesus to be the wrong one to, uh, to follow, or the wrong one to uh, point people to. But now this respected teacher, the teacher of Israel, the great one that everyone looked to, comes and stands before a much younger man, a peasant rabbi, a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And he asked him questions. Now Jesus could have met this man, this important man, with a lot of different responses. He could have been afraid of him. He, he could have uh, said, uh, uh, I, I, I need to tone down my message so that I will be accepted by him. He could have tried to gain Nicodemus' respect. He could have refused to meet with the Pharisee, just like some of us might be afraid to meet with a Catholic priest who has questions, or a Muslim imam, or a leader of the Latter-day Saints. We'd be terrified of somebody like that, wouldn't we? At the same time, if they're seeking true answers, and they're humble enough to come to you, what should be your response? Jesus chose to meet with the man, and to listen to him, to let Nicodemus speak his heart, and bring him the answers that he needed. Look back in your Bible in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And let's go through this encounter and see how Jesus graciously dealt with this moral and religious leader who knew he still had a need. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus' response is truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now to you and me, I would grow up in the Christian church. I grew up in, a, in, a, in, in church all my life. That seems very simple. Of course, you, you, uh, you uh, must be born again to see the kingdom of God. But that was a totally foreign concept to Nicodemus. He was clueless. He did not understand what Jesus was talking about. He had no idea. And his response in verse 4 says, How can a man be born when he is old? Uh, he cannot enter a sec second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You see, Nicodemus is missing the entire point. Jesus is trying to explain to him spiritual things. And all Nicodemus can think about is the physical things. He'd grown up with the physical aspect of the law, obeying this, doing this thing, doing the right thing. Faith was not much of it. It was mostly outward actions. It was mostly keeping the rules. It was mostly doing what he'd been taught all of his life, trying to somehow earn God's favor. And yet he knew he'd fallen short. Jesus is explaining to him something completely different. It's called grace. And it's something that Nicodemus needs. And it's something that every person you, run in, you come in contact with needs. Jesus was explaining to him spiritual matters. Jesus said in verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you're born physically and spiritually, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. They're two different things. This is the idea of what being born again is. Oh, we're all born once physically. We wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be watching right now. But I hope that you have been born spiritually. 
you need to have that second birth if you haven't had it. And if you have had it, how dare you hoard what God has given to you? Share it with those who need this. There's a lot of people who have only had the one birth, and they need that second birth. Can you see the confused look on, Fer on the Pharisee's face? I can. Nicodemus is going, what is he talking about? The lights had not come on yet. Uh, Nicodemus' response, uh, what? How can these things be in verse 9? And Jesus didn't pull any punches, but he was not unkind. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we look at the world and go, how, how foolish they are, how, how silly they are, how, how stupid this religion is that they're trying to keep up with. But that's all they've known. That's all they know. That's what they've been taught since they were children. And they need to have a new teaching. They need to have new doctrine. They need to have an understanding of God's word and the grace of salvation that's available to them. Jesus didn't pull any punches, but he was not unkind. In verse 11, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. In other words, Jesus had been saying these things all along, and the Pharisees are going, we don't believe that. That's just not true. They've been just ignoring what Jesus has been saying all along because they're so wrapped up in their religion. But now comes a time when Nicodemus' eyes are starting to open the Holy Spirit's working in his heart. If Nicodemus had been at that meeting with that 12-year-old boy 18 or 20 years before in the temple, he was aware of Jesus' reply to Mary and Joseph. And when they questioned why he was staying there at the temple, in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Jesus said, Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? King James says, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? You see, Jesus wasn't from this world. Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth, and he was trying to help Nicodemus to understand this. I am the one that God has sent to redeem the world. I am the Lamb of God that you've been looking for. I am the Messiah you have been seeking all of your life as a religious leader. I am the answer that God has provided. Even as a boy, Jesus had not hidden his identity of the Son of God. I must be about my father's business. I have to go to my father's house. I have to do the work my father has sent me to do. Jesus said in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. But the light still hadn't come on. So once again, Jesus strives to help Nicodemus to see that he has to come to the place of faith. The place of turning away from everything that he had been trusting in up to that point, his religion, his good works, and, and to repent of all of that, his pride and the arrogance of all of that, the, the sin that goes along with trusting in yourself and the only way that you can earn your way to heaven, and, and, and turning and spurning away from the grace of God. Jesus said in verse 14, as Moses Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Remember that story back in the Old Testament? Now Nicodemus is starting to go, What's, what, what is this about? Remember, Moses is in the middle of a group of people, of the Israelites, who had been bitten and been attacked by snakes, and, and they're, they're dying all around him. And God tells him to make a brazen snake, a brass snake, and put it up on a stick and a pole, and tell them, if you will look at this snake, 
Look at this brazen serpent, you will be healed. And those who did were healed. And those who didn't died. This is the illustration of what is going to happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who's talking to him right there, must be lifted up so that whoever believes in, will in him have eternal life. And then he goes into those famous verses that you and I have known since we were children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus is talking about himself. That whoever believes in him, himself, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, Jesus presents this very graciously, but he tells him, You have to put your trust in me, or you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. It really doesn't get any plainer than that. Nicodemus, God loves you. He sent me to offer you eternal life. If you believe in me, just as those children of Israel believed in that serpent on a pole, if you'll trust in me with that simple faith of looking to me and trusting me, you can be saved. You can have eternal life. What a gracious offer. Jesus spoke with grace, but he also spoke the truth, the hard truth that Nicodemus needed to hear. Verses 18 through 21 are a little more plain, a little more pointed. Jesus told him the truth. He brought him there to this place graciously and in love and kindly. He offered the gift of salvation. But he says there's a consequence if you do not accept this gift. It says in verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's rejecting him. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness, the darkness of their religion, the darkness of their sin, the darkness of their own way, rather than the light of truth. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now that's the last that we hear of Nicodemus for quite a while. He, we don't know if he, if he accepted Jesus that night. But we do know that God began working in his heart. We do know that the light had been presented to him, the truth had been presented to him graciously, lovingly, and pointedly. That's how we deal with religious people. They need to know the truth, but they also need to know the love of God and the love of believers for them. We know this that Nicodemus probably, more than likely, though we don't have an exact time where we can say we hear Nicodemus in the scriptures praying and asking Jesus to save him, his actions seem to prove that he did. The next two times that Nicodemus is mentioned is script, in Scripture, first of all, in John chapter 7 and verse 50, Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees and they're planning things. And Nicodemus says that, well, let me, let's read there. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And, uh, and we've got a little time, so we'll look at that. In John chapter 7, uh, the, someone said, Not, "No one of the rule in verse forty-eight. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed." And Nicodemus, who came to him before being one of them, said to them, "Our law 
does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are also, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then everyone went to their homes. So Nicodemus, the next time we see him, is he is defending the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, Hey, listen to what he's saying. There's something going there's something unique about this man. There's something special about this man. Perhaps if you have an opportunity to speak to a religious person, Perhaps if you come to a person who's really truly honest and seeking like Nicodemus was, you can help them to have the light come on in their hearts. Now they may not come to Christ immediately. They may not immediately bow, get on their knees and pray and ask Jesus to save them. But you can help them to start thinking along that way. Now the other time that we see Nicodemus is found in John chapter 19. And we won't go there. But John chapter 19 in verse 39 we see that after Jesus Christ has died on the cross, his blood has been shed, he's paid the sacrifice for our sins, a man named Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for the body of the Lord so that he can bury him in his own borrowed tomb. And the person who comes along beside Joseph of Arimathea, a closet Christian, you might want to call him, a wealthy benefactor of Jesus' ministry, Nicodemus is right there with him. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and claim the body of Jesus and put him in the tomb. I believe that that may be proof that Nicodemus came to know Christ as, as Savior. Or why would he love him so? So, again, we don't have a definite no, uh, a prayer that Nicodemus prayed. But I believe we're going to see him in heaven. Now, how does this apply to you and me? How does this apply to our church? First, the church should be engaging people in the community with the plain truth of the gospel. That's part of Dean Taylor's outline of this little portion of his chapter. Jesus was constantly speaking the gospel wherever he went. And, and he was engaging people wherever he went. And we need to be engaging everyone with the gospel. I was pleased on Tuesday night to hear of a couple of our ladies, I think three different ladies, talk about opportunities they'd had to share the gospel uh, with caregivers and, and other people with whom they're dealing with in, in during this COVID crisis. And uh, one lady led a, a, a homeless man to pray and accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Whether he actually did or not, I don't know, but I appreciate the effort that she made to try to make contact with him. Good job, Cynthia. I want to congratulate you for that. Now, this is the way we need to be living our lives. Jesus Christ has left the earth, and he left us with a mission to be gracious and truthful in a world that needs the gospel. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus came and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and uh, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the edge, end of the age. So remember our mission. We have been left here to preach the gospel to a world that needs it. So first, engage people in the community with the plain truth of the gospel. And secondly, like Nicodemus, the church should be helping religious and moral people understand that they too need the Savior. In our track rack, we have... A gospel tract that says, I've got my own religion. 
And in that track, there are four different religions represented. I'm not sure what all of them are. One looks like it's an Eastern religion. One looks like it's a Catholic religion. One may be a Muslim religion. One may be a, 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 a some kind of a... I'm not sure what it is. But all of these religions are there, and we know we live in a community full of religious people. And we have a tendency when we run into them to say, well... I mean, we live out. We I, I live at the church, and we're we're on Cathedral Hill, and there's all kinds of churches all around there. And the tendency is to say, well, whatever you believe is all right, as long as you believe something. Everybody's got their own beliefs. I respect your beliefs. Uh, any religion is valid as long as it doesn't claim to be the only religion. That seems to be the the main thing that everybody agrees on. But the fact of the matter is that we have the truth, the only truth. And it's very important that we express that truth to people because they can be religious and they can be moral and they can still end up in the flames of hell. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction there, and there are many who enter in through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's clearly only one way to heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4, 12, Peter preached, There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Religious people can be nice. Religious people can be kind. Religious people can be sincere. But if they don't know the truth, they're going to end up in the same place as a non-religious person who rejects Christ. They need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, sometimes unsaved people do nicer things than some Christians do. Building orphanages, uh, providing soup at soup kitchens, giving money to homeless people along the street who, who need it, and, uh, and trying to find homes for people. And, and that's, that's all nice, and that's all good, but religion doesn't save souls. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee stood up and said, I've done all these good things. And the tax collector was the one that Jesus said was redeemed because he fell to his knees and said, uh, I am a sinner and I need to come to know the Lord. Dean Taylor says, just like Nicodemus, these people may be very religious in practice or moral in lifestyle, but they still need to be born again. Religion doesn't save, and moral people still sin. All need to hear the message of grace. Every one of them needs to be confronted with the truth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. You know the verse, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is true of everyone who finds true salvation. So, what we need to do, when we're dealing with these religious, moral people, we need to be gracious. We need to be kind. We need to be truthful. And we should not back away from what we know to be the truth. That's what Jesus did. He was full of grace and truth. Gracious and truthful. I think sometimes we tend to be gracious. And we want to be kind. And we want to be accepted. And we're fearful of being rejected by saying too much of truth. But if we really love people, as we claim to do, 
it is vital that we remember the truth aspect or we're really not their friends. If you had the antidote to COVID and said, I, am, I have the ability to give it to everybody in the world and then you said, no, I'm not going to do it, you would not be their friend because you didn't want to hurt them with a prick. The gospel may prick hearts, but it is the antidote to sin. Be faithful, Christian friends. Tell the truth to those who need to hear it with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this example that has been given to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who ran the risk of everything by leaving heaven and coming to a sinful earth like this to be put to death by the sinners he came to save. Thank you, Lord, that even in his life he showed us not only the way of salvation, but how to share it with others. And help us over the next few weeks to rekindle in our own love for the Lord Jesus Christ and to be rekindled in our desire to fulfill our mission that we've been left here to fulfill. Lord, do it in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.